section forty two of a compendious history of english literature and of the english language volume one this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox dot org a compendious history of english literature and of the english language volume one by george lilly craik chapter four part eighteen marlowe of a different and far higher order of poetical and dramatic character is another play of this date upon a similar subject the tragical history of the life and death of dr faustus by christopher marlowe marlowe died at an early age in fifteen ninety three the year after green and three or four years before peel he had been a writer for the stage at least since fifteen eighty six in which year or before was brought out the play of tamburlaine the great his claim to the authorship of which has been conclusively established by mr collier who has further shown that this was the first play written in blank verse that was exhibited on the public stage marlowe's mighty line has been celebrated by ben jonson in his famous verses on shakespeare but drayton the author of the Palobium, has extolled him in the most glowing description in words the most worthy of the theme next marlowe bathed in the thespian springs had in him those brave translunary things that the first poets had his raptures were all air and fire which made his verses clear for that fine madness still he did retain which rightly should possess a poet's brain marlowe is by nearly universal admission our greatest dramatic writer before shakespeare he is frequently indeed turgid and bombastic especially in his earliest play tamburlaine the great which has just been mentioned where his fire it must be confessed sometimes blazes out of all bounds and becomes a mere wasting conflagration sometimes only raves in a furious storm of sound filling the ear without any other effect but in his fits of truer inspiration all the magic of terror pathos and beauty flashes from him in streams the gradual accumulation of the agonies of faustus in the concluding scene of that play as the moment of his awful fate comes nearer and nearer powerfully drawn as it is is far from being one of those coarse pictures of wretchedness that merely oppress us with horror the most admirable skill is applied throughout in balancing that emotion by sympathy and even respect for the sufferer for he was a scholar once admired for wondrous knowledge in our german schools and yet without disturbing our acquiescence in the justice of his doom till we close the book saddened indeed but not dissatisfied with the pitying but still tributary and almost consoling words of the chorus on our hearts cut is the branch that might have grown full straight and burned is apollo's laurel bough that sometime grew within this learned man still finer perhaps is the conclusion of another of marlowe's dramas his tragedy of edward the second the reluctant pangs of abdicating royalty in edward 
says charles lamb furnished hints which shakespeare scarce improved in his richard the second and the death scene of marlowe's king moves pity and terror beyond any scene ancient or modern with which i am acquainted much splendour of poetry also is expended upon the delineation of barabbas in the rich jew of malta the marlowe's jew as lamb has observed does not approach so near to shakespeare's in the merchant of venice as his edward the second we are more reminded of some of barabbas's speeches by the magnificent declamation of mammon in johnson's alchemist lily kid lodge marlow green and peel are the most noted names among those of our dramatists who belong exclusively to the age of elizabeth but some others that have less modern celebrity may perhaps be placed at least on the same line with the two latter john lilly the euphuist as he is called from one of his prose works which will be noticed presently is as a poet in his happiest efforts elegant and fanciful but his genius was better suited for the lighter kinds of lyric poetry than for the drama he is the author of nine dramatic pieces but of these seven are in prose and only one in rhyme and one in blank verse all of them according to mr collier seem to have been written for court entertainments although they were also performed at theatres most usually by the children of st paul's and the revels they were fitter it might be added for beguiling the listlessness of courts than for the entertainment of a popular audience a thirst for action and passion and very indifferent to mere ingenuities of style all poetical readers however remember some songs and other short pieces of verse with which some of them are interspersed particularly a delicate little anacreontic in that entitled alexander and campaspe beginning cupid and my campaspe played at cards for kisses etc mr collier observes that malone must have spoken from a very superficial acquaintance with lilly's works when he contends that his plays are comparatively free from those affected conceits and remote allusions that characterize most of his other productions thomas kidd the author of the two plays of geronimo and the spanish tragedy which is a continuation of the former besides a translation of another piece from the french appears to be called sporting kid by johnson in his verses on shakespeare in allusion merely to his name there is at least nothing particularly sportive in the little that has come down to us from his pen kidd was a considerable master of language but his rank as a dramatist is not very easily settled seeing that there is much doubt as to his claims to the authorship of by far the most striking passages in the spanish tragedy the best of his two plays lamb quoting the scenes in question describes them as the very salt of the old play which without them he adds is but a caput mortuum it has been generally assumed that they were added by ben jonson who certainly was employed to make some additions to this play and mr collier attributes them to him as if the point did not admit of a doubt acknowledging however that they represent jonson in a new light and that certainly there is nothing in his own entire plays equaling in pathetic beauty some of his contributions to the spanish tragedy nevertheless it does not seem to be perfectly clear that the supposed contributions by another hand might not have been the work of kidd himself 
lamb says there is nothing in the undoubted plays of johnson which would authorize us to suppose that he could have supplied the scenes in question i should suspect the agency of some more potent spirit webster might have furnished them they are full of that wild solemn preternatural cast of grief which bewilders us in the duchess of malfi the last of these early dramatists we shall notice thomas lodge who was born about fifteen fifty six and began to write for the stage about fifteen eighty is placed by mr collier in a rank superior to green but in some respects inferior to kidd his principal dramatic work is entitled the wounds of civil war lively set forth in the true tragedies of marius and scylla and is written in blank verse with a mixture of rhyme it shows him mr collier thinks to have unquestionably the advantage over kidd as a drawer of character though not equalling that writer in general vigour and boldness of poetic conception his blank verse is also much more monotonous than that of kidd another strange drama and rhyme written by lodge in conjunction with green is entitled a looking-glass for london and england and has for its object to put down the puritanical outcry against the immorality of the stage which it attempts to accomplish by a grotesque application to the city of london of the scriptural story of nineveh the whole performance in mr collier's opinion is wearisomely dull although the authors have endeavoured to lighten the weight by the introduction of scenes of drunken buffoonery between a clown and his crew of ruffians and between the same clown and a person disguised as the devil in order to frighten him but who is detected and well beaten mr hallam however pronounces that there is great talent shown in this play though upon a very strange canvas lodge who was an eminent physician has left a considerable quantity of other poetry besides his plays partly in the form of novels or tales partly in shorter pieces many of which may be found in the miscellany called england's helicon from which a few of them have been extracted by mr ellis in his specimens they are perhaps on the whole more creditable to his poetical powers than his dramatic performances he is also the author of several short works in prose sometimes interspersed with verse one of his prose tales first printed in fifteen ninety under the title of rosalind euphues golden legacy found in his cell at selextra for lodge was one of lily's imitators is famous as the source from which shakespeare appears to have taken the story of his as you like it of this production it may be said observes mr collier that our admiration of many portions of it will not be diminished by a comparison with the work of our great dramatist it is worthy of remark that all these founders and first builders up of the regular drama in england were nearly if not absolutely without an exception classical scholars and men who had received a university education nicholas udall was of corpus christi college oxford john still if he is to be considered the author of gammer girton's needle was of christ college cambridge sackville was educated at both universities so was gascoigne richard edwards was of corpus christi oxford marlowe was of bennett college cambridge green of st john's cambridge peel of christ church oxford lily of maudlin college and lodge of trinity college and the same university kidd was also probably a university man though we know nothing of his private history to the training received by these writers the drama that arose among us after the middle of the sixteenth century may be considered to owe not only its form but in part also its spirit which had a learned and classical tinge from the first 
that never entirely wore out the diction of the works of all these dramatists betrays their scholarship and they have left upon the language of our higher drama and indeed of our blank verse in general of which they were the main creators and impress of latinity which it can scarcely be doubted our vigorous but still homely and unsonorous gothic speech needed to fit it for the requirements of that species of composition fortunately however the greatest and most influential of them were not mere men of books and readers of greek and latin green and peel and marlow all spent the noon of their days none of them saw any afternoon in the busiest haunts of social life sounding in their reckless course all the depths of human experience and drinking the cup of passion and also of suffering to the dregs and of their great successors those who carried the drama to its height among us in the next age while some were also accomplished scholars all were men of the world men who knew their brother men by an actual and intimate intercourse with them in their most natural and open-hearted moods and over a remarkably extended range of conditions we know from even the scanty fragments of their history that have come down to us that shakespeare and johnson and beaumont and fletcher all lived much in the open air of society and mingled with all ranks from the highest to the lowest some of them indeed having known what it was actually to belong to classes very far removed from each other at different periods of their lives but we should have gathered though no other record or tradition had told us that they must have been men of this genuine and manifold experience from the drama alone which they have bequeathed to us various rich and glowing as that is even as life itself earlier elizabethan prose lily sydney spencer nash etc before leaving the earlier part of the reign of elizabeth a few of the more remarkable writers in prose who had risen into notice before the year fifteen ninety may be mentioned the singular affectation known by the name of euphuism was like some other celebrated absurdities the invention of a man of true genius john lilly noticed above as a dramatist and poet the first part of whose prose romance of euphues appeared in fifteen seventy eight or fifteen seventy nine our nation says sir henry blunt in the preface to a collection of some of lilly's dramatic pieces which he published in sixteen thirty two are in his debt for a new english which he taught them euphues and his england began first that language all our ladies were then his scholars and that beauty in court which could not parley euphuism that is to say who was unable to converse in that pure and reformed english which he had formed his work to be the standard of was as little regarded as she which now there speaks not french some notion of this pure and reformed english has been made familiar to the reader of our day by the great modern pen that has called back to life so much of the long-vanished past though the discourse of sir piercy shafton in the monastery is rather a caricature than a fair sample of euphuism doubtless it often became a purely silly and pitiable affair in the mouths of the courtiers male and female but in lilly's own writings and in those of his lettered imitators of whom he had several and some of no common talent it was only fantastic and extravagant and opposed to truth nature good sense and manliness 
pedantic and far-fetched allusion elaborate indirectness a cloying smoothness and drowsy monotony of diction alliteration punning and other such puerilities these are the main ingredients of euphuism which do not however exclude a good deal of wit fancy and prettiness occasionally both in the expression and the thought although lily in his verse as well as in his prose is always artificial to excess his ingenuity and finished elegance are frequently very captivating perhaps indeed our language is after all indebted to this writer and his euphuism for not a little of its present euphony from the strictures shakespeare in love's labours lost makes holofernes pass on the mode of speaking of his euphuist don adriano de armado a man of fire new words fashion's own knight that hath a mint of phrases in his brain one whom the music of his own vain tongue doth ravish like enchanting harmony it should almost seem that the now universally adopted pronunciation of many of our words was first introduced by such persons at this refining child of fancy i abhor such fanatical phantasms such insociable and point device companions such rackers of orthography as to speak doubt fine when he should say dabit debt when he should pronounce debit d-e-b-t not d-e-t he cleppeth a calf cough half hoff neighbor vacatur nabur nay abbreviated ne this is abominable which he would call abominable it insinuateth me of insani here however the all-seeing poet laughs rather at the pedantic schoolmaster than at the fantastic knight and the euphuistic pronunciation which he makes holofernes so indignantly criticised was most probably his own and that of the generality of his educated contemporaries a renowned english prose classic of this age who made lily's affectations the subject of his ridicule some years before shakespeare but who also perhaps was not blind to his better qualities and did not disdain to adopt some of his reforms in the language if not to imitate even some of the peculiarities of his style was sir philip sidney the illustrious author of the arcadia sidney who was born in fifteen fifty four does not appear to have sent anything to the press during his short and brilliant life which was terminated by the wound he received at the battle of zutphen in fifteen eighty six but he was probably well known nevertheless at least as a writer of poetry some years before his lamented death putnam whose art of english poesy at whatever time it may have been written was published before any work of sidney's had been printed so far as can now be discovered mentions him as one of the best and most famous writers of the age for eclogue and pastoral poesy the countess of pembroke's arcadia as sidney's principal work had been affectionately designated by himself in compliment to his sister to whom it was inscribed the fair and good and learned lady afterwards celebrated by ben jonson as the subject of all verse was not given to the world even in part till fifteen ninety nor completely till fifteen ninety three his collection of sonnets and songs entitled astrophel and stella first appeared in fifteen ninety one and his other most celebrated piece in prose the defence of poesy in fifteen ninety five the production in which he satirizes 
the affectation and pedantry of the modern corrupters of the vernacular tongue is a sort of mask supposed to pass before queen elizabeth in wanstead garden in which among other characters a village schoolmaster called rhombus appears and declaims in a jargon not unlike that of shakespeare's hollow fernies sidney's own prose is the most flowing and poetical that had yet been written in english but its graces are rather those of artful elaboration than of a vivid natural expressiveness the thought in fact is generally more poetical than the language it is a spirit of poetry encased in a rhetorical form yet notwithstanding the conceits into which it frequently runs and which after all are mostly rather the frolics of a nimble wit somewhat too solicitous of display than the sickly perversities of a coxcomical or effeminate taste and notwithstanding also some want of animation and variety sidney's is a wonderful style always flexible harmonious and luminous and on fit occasions rising to great stateliness and splendour while a breath of beauty and noble feeling lives in and exhales from the whole of his great work like the fragrance from a garden of flowers among the most active occasional writers in prose also about this time were others of the poets and dramatists of the day besides lodge who has been already mentioned as one of lilly's imitators another of his productions besides his tale of rosalind which has lately attracted much attention is a defence of stage plays which he published probably in fifteen seventy nine in answer to stephen gosen's school of abuse and of which only two copies are known to exist both wanting the title page green was an incessant pamphleteer upon all sorts of subjects the list of his prose publications so far as they are known given by mr dyce extends to between thirty and forty articles the earliest being dated fifteen eighty four or eight years before his death morality fiction satire blackguardism are all mingled together in the stream that thus appears to have flowed without pause from his ready pen in a night and a day says his friend nash would he have yarked up a pamphlet as well as in seven years and glad was that printer that might be so blessed to pay him dear for the very dregs of his wit his wit indeed often enough appears to have run to the dregs nor is it very sparkling at the best but green's prose though not in general very animated is more concise and perspicuous than his habits of composition might lead us to expect he is generally written from a well-informed or full mind and the matter is interesting even when there is no particular attraction in the manner among his most curious pamphlets are his several tracts on the rogueries of london which he describes under the name of coney catching a favourite subject also with other popular writers of that day but the most remarkable of all green's contributions to our literature are his various publications which either directly relate or are understood to shadow forth the history of his own wild and unhappy life his tale entitled never too late or a powder of experience fifteen ninety the second part entitled francesco's fortunes the same year his groat's worth of wit bought with a million of repentance and the repentance of robert green master of arts which both appeared after his death in fifteen ninety two green as well as lodge we may remark is to be reckoned among the euphuists a tale which he published in fifteen eighty seven and which was no less than five times reprinted in the course of the next half-century is entitled menaphon camilla's alarm to slumbering euphues in his melancholy cell at silexedra etc and the same year he produced euphues his censure to philantus 
wherein is presented a philosophical combat between hector and achilles etc but he does not appear to have persisted in this fashion of style it may be noticed as curiously illustrating the spirit and manner of our fictitious literature at this time that in his pandosto or history of derastus and faunia green a scholar and a master of arts of cambridge does not hesitate to make bohemia an island just as is done by shakespeare in treating the same story in his winter's tale the critics have been accustomed to instance this as one of the evidences of shakespeare's ignorance and then johnson is recorded to have in his conversation with drummond of hawthornden quoted it as a proof that his great brother dramatist wanted art and sometimes sense the truth is as has been observed such deviations from fact and other incongruities of the same character were not minded or attempted to be avoided either in the romantic drama or in the legends out of which it was formed they are not blunders but part and parcel of the fiction the making bohemia an island is not nearly so great a violation of geographical truth as other things in the same play are of all the proprieties and possibilities of chronology and history for instance the coexistence of a kingdom of bohemia at all or of that modern barbaric name with anything so entirely belonging to the old classic world as the oracle of delphi the story though no earlier record of it has yet been discovered is not improbably much older than either shakespeare or green the latter no doubt expanded and adorned it and mainly gave it its present shape but it is most likely that he had for his groundwork some rude popular legend or tradition the characteristic middle-aged geography and chronology of which he most properly did not disturb but the most brilliant pamphleteer of this age was thomas nash nash is the author of one slight dramatic piece mostly in blank verse but partly in prose and having also some lyrical poetry interspersed called summer's last will and testament which was exhibited before queen elizabeth at nonsuch in fifteen ninety two and he also assisted marlowe in his tragedy of dido queen of carthage which although not printed till fifteen ninety four is supposed to have been written before fifteen ninety but his satiric was of a much higher order than his dramatic talent there never perhaps was poured forth such a rushing and roaring torrent of wit ridicule and invective as in the rapid succession of pamphlets which he published in the course of the year fifteen eighty nine against the puritans and their famous champion or rather not of champions taking the name of martin mar prelate unless in those in which he began two years after to assail poor gabriel harvey his persecution of and controversy with whom lasted a much longer time till indeed the archbishop of canterbury whitgift interfered in fifteen ninety seven to restore the peace of the realm by an order that all harvey's and nash's books should be taken wherever they might be found and that none of the said books be ever printed hereafter mr disraeli has made both these controversies familiar to modern readers by his lively accounts of the one in his quarrels of the other in his calamities of authors and ample specimens of the criminations and recriminations hurled at one another by nash and harvey have also been given by mr dyce in the life of green prefixed to his edition of that writer's dramatic and poetical works harvey too was a man of eminent talent but it was of a kind very different from that of nash nash's style is remarkable for its airiness and facility clear it of its old spelling and unless it be for a few words and idioms which have now dropped out of the popular speech it has quite a modern air this may show by the by that the language has not altered so much since the latter part of the sixteenth century as the ordinary prose of that day would lead us to suppose 
the difference is rather that the generality of writers were more pedantic then than now and sought in a way that is no longer the fashion to brocade their composition with what were called inkhorn terms and outlandish phrases never used except in books if they had been satisfied to write as they spoke the style of that day as we may perceive from the example of nash would have in its general character considerably more resembled that of the present gabriel harvey's mode of writing exhibits all the peculiarities of his age in their most exaggerated form he was a great scholar and his composition is inspired by the very genius of pedantry full of matter full often of good sense not unfrequently rising to a tone of dignity and even eloquence but always stiff artificial and elaborately unnatural to a degree which was even then unusual we may conceive what sort of chance such a heavy-armed combatant encumbered and oppressed by the very weapons he carried would have in a war of wit with the quick elastic inexhaustible nash and the showering jokes and sarcasms that flashed from his easy natural pen harvey too with all his merits was both vain and envious and he had some absurdities which afforded tempting game for satire in particular he plumed himself on having reformed the barbarism of english verse by setting the example of modelling it after the latin hexameter if i never deserve any better remembrance he exclaims in one of his pamphlets let me be epitaphed the inventor of the english hexameter nash again profanely characterizes the said hexameter as that drunken staggering kind of verse which is all uphill and downhill like the way betwixt stamford and beechfield and goes like a horse plunging through the mire in the deep of winter now soused up to the saddle and straight aloft on his tiptoes in these last words we suppose exemplifying the thing he describes and derides english hexameter verse harvey however did not want imitators in his crotchet and among them were some of high name he boasts in the same place where he claims the credit of the invention of being able to reckon among his disciples not only learned mr stanyhurst that is richard stanyhurst who in fifteen eighty three produced a most extraordinary performance which he called a translation of the first four books of the aeneid in this reformed verse but excellent sir philip sidney who he observes had not disdained to follow him in his arcadia and elsewhere this is stated in his four letters and certain sonnets especially touching robert green fifteen eighty two but from a preceding publication entitled three proper and witty familiar letters lately passed between two university men touching the earthquake in april last and our english reformed versifying which were given to the world in fifteen eighty we learned that edmund spencer too seemed or professed himself for a short time half inclined to enlist himself among the practitioners of the new method the two university men between whom the letters had passed are spencer who is designated emerito and harvey with whom he had become intimate at cambridge they were both of pembroke hall and by whom he is supposed to have been introduced to sydney a short time before this correspondence began the letters are in fact five in number the original three before the pamphlet was published having had two others added to them of the same men's writing both touching the foresaid artificial versifying and certain other particulars more lately delivered unto the printer the publication is introduced by a preface from a well willer to both writers who professes to have come by the letters at fourth or fifth hand through a friend who with much entreaty had procured the copying of them out at emerito's hands he had not he declares made the writers privy to the publication 
the merits of harvey's letters in particular which form indeed the principal part of the pamphlet and to which the only one by spencer originate designed to be given is merely introductory are trumpeted forth in this preface in a very confident style but show me or emerito exclaims the well-willer two english letters in print in all points equal to the other two both for the matter itself and also for the manner of handling and say we never saw good english letters in our lives and yet he adds i am credibly informed by the foresaid faithful and honest friend that himself the writer of the said two letters hath written many of the same stamp both to courtiers and others and some of them discoursing upon manners of great weight and importance wherein he is said to be fully as sufficient and habile as in those scholarly points of learning nevertheless this well-wisher or his faithful and honest friend was strongly suspected at the time to be no other than harvey himself nash declares in one of his pamphlets that the compositor by whom the well-willer's epistle or preface was set up swore to him that it came under harvey's own hand to be printed and in another place addressing harvey he says you were young in years when you privately wrote the letters that afterward were publicly divulged by no other but yourself signor amerito was counterfeitly brought in to play a part in that his interlude of epistles i durst on my credit undertake spencer was in no way privy to the committing of them to print committing i will call it for in my opinion g h should not have reaped so much discredit by being committed to newgate as by committing that misbelieving prose to the press nash's authority however is none of the best and it is fair to add that harvey himself in one of his four letters published in fifteen ninety two speaks of the present letters as having been sent to the press either by some malicious enemy or some indiscreet friend it can hardly be supposed that he designed to conceal himself under the latter description but to return to what spencer tells us of his studies and experiments in english hexameters and pentameters in one letter written from leicester house westminster in october fifteen seventy nine he says as for the two worthy gentlemen mr sidney and mr dyer afterwards sir edward dyer and greatly esteemed as a writer of verse in his day they have me i thank them in some use and familiarity of whom and to whom what speech passeth to your credit and estimation i leave yourself to conceive having always so well conceived of my unfeigned affection and zeal towards you and now they have proclaimed in their areopalo a general surceasing and silence of bald rhymers and also of the very best too instead whereof they have by authority of their whole senate prescribed certain rules and laws of quantities of english syllables for english verse having had thereof already great practice and almost drawn me into their faction afterwards he goes farther i am more in love he says with english versifying that was the name by which harvey and his friends distinguished the new invention than with rhyming which i should have done with long since if i would then have followed your counsel and he concludes i received your letter sent me the last week whereby i perceive you continued your old exercise of versifying in english which glory i had now thought should have been ours at london and the court trust me he adds your, your verses i like passingly well and envy your hidden pains in this kind or rather malign and grudge at yourself that would not once impart so much to me he remarks however that harvey has once or twice made a breach in the rules laid down for this new mode of versifying by master drant that is thomas drant chiefly known as the author of two collections of latin poetry entitled silva and poemata waria but also the author of some first translations from the latin and greek you shall see says spencer in conclusion when we meet in london and when it shall be certify us how fast i have followed after you in that course beware lest in time i overtake you and as a sample of what he had been doing he subjoins a few english iambics 
six months later we find him still occupied with the new method writing to harvey again in the beginning of april fifteen eighty he says i like your late english hexameter so exceedingly well that i also inure my pen sometimes in that kind which i find indeed as i have often heard you defend in word neither so hard nor so harsh but that it will easily and fairly yield itself to our mother tongue yet from what follows it almost looks as if he were all the while making sport of his solemn friend and his preposterous invention the only or chiefest hardness which seemeth he goes on is in the accent which sometime gapeth and as it were yawneth ill-favouredly coming short of that it should and sometime exceeding the measure of the number as in carpenter the middle several being used short in speech when it shall be read long in verse seemeth like a lame gosling that draweth one leg after her and heaven being used short is one syllable when it is in verse stretched out with a diastole is like a lame dog that holds up one leg nash's ridicule is hardly so unmerciful as this spencer however adds by way of consolation but it is to be one with custom and rough words must be subdued with use afterwards he sets down four lines of english elegiac verse asking seem they comparable to those two which i translated you extempore in bed the last time we lay together in westminster that which i eat did i joy and that which i greedily gorged as for those many goodly matters left i for others this can hardly have been written or even one would think have been intended to be taken seriously i would hardly wish he concludes you would either send me the rules and precepts of art which you observe in quantities or else follow mine that m philip sidney gave me being the very name which m drant devised but enlarged with m sidney's own judgment and augmented with my observations that we might both agree in accord in one lest we overthrow one another and be overthrown of the rest from this it would appear that after all drant whose era was between fifteen sixty and fifteen seventy was in this matter of english hexameters before harvey but indeed long before this sir thomas more had amused himself with the same fancy and the attempt to mould english verse into the form of latin which long afterwards exercised the ingenuity of milton and which has been revived in our own day continued to engage some attention down to the close of the sixteenth century in sixteen o two was published a small pamphlet entitled observations on the art of english poesy by thomas campion wherein it is demonstratively proved and by example confirmed that the english tune will receive eight several kinds of numbers proper to itself which are all in this book set forth and were never before this time by any man attempted thomas campion or champion was a poet of some celebrity in his day his name occurs along with those of spencer and shakespeare the others are sidney john owen daniel hugh holland ben jonson drayton chapman and marston in camden's enumeration in his remains concerning britain first published in sixteen o four of the most pregnant poetical wits then flourishing his tract was answered the next year by his brother poet samuel daniel in a defence of rhyme against a pamphlet entitled observations in the art of english poesy wherein is demonstratively proved that rhyme is the fittest harmony of words that comports with our language this reply appears to have terminated the controversy for the present and indeed although milton in a later day in addition to imitating or attempting to imitate the metres of horace also like campion denounced the gothic barbarism bondage of rhyme it never was again seriously proposed we believe to reform our poetry by the entire abolition of the natural prosody of the language and the substitution of the greek or latin End of section forty two